dear Heavenly Father. Lord, we approach your word once again with fear and trepidation because it is the word of God Most High, your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. We thank you for its sufficiency, that the word of God, your word, is enough, that it is final. And we want to be reminded of that this morning. Father, we want to pray for our country as we have been praying for, it seems, every moment of the day, but especially corporately. We pray for justice to prevail in our country upon those who've hurt others, that you would bring justice. And more importantly, Father, that you would bring them to justice as they turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for their souls. Help us to have compassion for those who are lost in our world. And so we pray for the progress of the gospel in their hearts and lives. Father, we pray for our leaders, county, local, state, country levels, for all levels, for our leaders, for wisdom, for guidance. We pray, Father, for, Lord, humility, a humility that fleshes itself out in putting others before themselves. That life would stop being about battles and debates, one side over another, against another, but that they would put the lives of the citizens of this country ahead of themselves at all levels. Father, we pray for the gospel to advance even in those segments of our society amongst our leaders, local and national. Help them to see their need for you, Lord. Help them to see a country, according to Romans 1, that is experiencing your present wrath. Help them to see their need for Christ. Father, we pray for your people this morning. Many amongst who are here, many who are watching virtually, who are hurting, Lord, who are fearful, who are perplexed, who have questions as we all do. Father, these are sanctifying times. And I pray that in the midst of the hardship that we might be people who recognize that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus through all of this. Help us to be reminded of our need for your grace every single moment of the day. We would run to you, Father. Help us to not function, live as practical atheists, but that this would be a time that we would put into practice what we know about you, and even as we'll hear this morning about your gospel, the gospel of your Son, that it may shape everything, our outlook and our approach to things we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, last week we began um, addressing an issue the, or some of the issues in our society and we titled the, the message, God is not silent. God is not silent. And so this is part two of that particular message. As we began answering the question, if you remember, the most important question we should be asking ourselves as Christians, as a Christian church, how should we be responding to all that's happening in our country? And I think more pinpointedly, I asked this question. Is it possible to be committed to the gospel as a Christian church while at the same time being absolutely, genuinely concerned for what's happening in our country? Is that possible? Or is our commitment to the gospel as Christians directly at opposites with a genuine heartfelt concern and engagement with all that is taking place in our country and all over the world. 
Are those two compatible? A commitment to the gospel and a concern for these things, a genuine heartfelt concern for the things that are taking place. Well, we saw last week that God is not silent about these matters. That God speaks to us through his word and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ about all of these things. Few people seem to be concerned about hearing from God these days. But as Christians, we should be different. As children of God, our Heavenly Father, through faith in Jesus Christ, we should be most concerned about what God says about these things that are taking place. He's not silent about these things. The only question is, brothers and sisters, will we embrace and respond to what God is saying to us during these days? Will we embrace and respond to His truth? You know, this last week, I went into the doctor for a routine checkup. And uh, the nurse before the doctor came in did a full triage on me. And you know the routine. You've been to the doctor many times and what a triage comprises. You know, she checked my pulse, my breathing, my temperature, my blood pressure, my eyes, mouth, ears, etc. You get the point. Full triage before the doctor came in to make sure that they understood where I was at in all of those critical areas of my physical well-being. And I really think that the countrywide events taking place right now are God doing a triage on us, on me and on you as the Christian church in particular. Really the whole country and the whole world, but especially those of us who are children of God. What our outlook is toward Him and toward one another. Brothers and sisters, I believe that God is exposing our hearts during these days. And in particular, your attitudes and my attitudes and our actions. In particular, in this area of racism. And it's more explicit form. But, in its more subtle form, our heart prejudices and partiality toward one another. And towards people in the world. And I realize that perhaps for some of us to speak of racism brings images of racial slurs, people giving each other dirty looks, maybe um, people with white sheets over their heads chasing people of color. Maybe those are the images that you think about when you think about racism. But more prevalent is a type of sinful racism that is seen in subtle and secret hatred in our hearts. A heart prejudice and partiality that manifests itself, shows itself in indifference towards others who are not like us or in avoiding people not like us altogether. In a demeaning, discriminating, and condescending attitude towards other people, perhaps due to their skin color, maybe their social class, or maybe some other particular difference from us. And my greatest burden and concern is that if this is the case in the world, that this should not be the case in the church. I submit to you that this is a discipleship issue. This is an issue that should be addressed in your life from the, at the level of the heart if you are a follower of Jesus. This is a sanctification issue for the believer, for the Christian. Because when we come to Christ, 
this sin, like any other sin, doesn't just go away if you wrestle with this. It doesn't just go away. And for some of us, not all of us, for some of us, this is a blind spot in more ways than you and I realize it. Perhaps we don't see it for some of us. Maybe we overlook it for others of us. And for some people, they just flat out ignore it altogether. Some people, I reckon to say, brothers and sisters, are living in self-denial about this thing. As if this has never existed in their life. It is a blind spot for all of us. Well, I want you to know that far from a reaction to the current events that are taking place, we as your shepherds want to take a proactive approach to make sure that you realize that you need to grow in Christ-likeness in this area as well. If the events in our country are teaching us anything, it's that we need to look to our hearts to see, Lord, here I am laying my heart on the table. Please, ex- please examine me. Please see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life, in the way of righteousness in this area of my life. God wants us to be Christ-like in this area. And I really believe, brothers and sisters, in a very sanctified, optimistic kind of way, that rather than merely surviving during these times, God, by His grace and by the power of His Spirit and through the guidance of His Word, wants His people, His church, to thrive during these times, not just survive. Amen? He wants us to thrive spiritually. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? And we begin saying last week that God is not silent in His Word about what's taking place in our country. And we said first that being about the gospel means that we denounce injustice in all its forms. We understand as Christians that because God is just, that we should speak the truth in love into all areas of injustice in our world as salt and light, including this one that we're seeing in our country right now. We should not be heartless towards these things. Heartless towards murder, Violent injustice, violent hatred, exploitation of people, the harm being done to all people, including their livelihood. We should denounce all of those things as God's people. Secondly, we said that being about the gospel means that we mourn over human depravity. We mourn over human depravity. As Christians, our response should not be cold indifference to what's taking place in the world around us. Ignorance. The opposite of love is not just hatred. The opposite of love is also what? Indifference. Cold apathy towards the hurts and the pains of others. We are here, brothers and sisters, to fulfill the great commission. The great commission is to exalt Christ by making disciples who know love and serve Him. So people are our business. And what happens to people is our business. So we mourn over human depravity. And yes, we should be in outrage. And yes, we, there should be a sense of righteous indignation for the things that are taking place. But also, we should respond with compassion. Because there are lost people in our city, lost people in our state, lost people in our country, lost people, brothers and sisters, all over the world. And when the Lord Jesus saw the multitudes, what did that evoke in Him? He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. That's how we should be as well. Our hearts should break. 
for the lostness that we see around us. If we're being shaped by the gospel, then these are things that we should be concerned about and speak the truth and love into if we're being gospel-shaped. Now, what I want us to think about today is that as we speak up and as we speak into the things that are going on right now in our world and in our country, we should never lose sight of the truth. We should never lose sight of the gospel. I am zealous for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else right now. I hope that you are as well. I am zealous for the protection and the preservation of the purity of the unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anything else that I'm feeling right now. There's a sense of righteous indignation. And I'm sure at some particular moments, sinful indignation even. Because I'm a sinner. But there's a sense of righteous indignation toward those who are assuming the gospel during this time. You see, there is always in every age, I want to remind us this morning, a battle for the gospel. A battle for the purity of the gospel of Jesus. And that battle is primarily fought on the level of ideologies. On the level of ideas. Of thinking fortresses. Of thinking mountains, if you will. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, that is in this physical body, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, that is they're not physical, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And what are these fortresses? We are destroying speculations. Speculations are ideas of the intellect. Ideas of the mind. Thinking fortresses, if you will. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What Paul is saying is that there are two opposing forces at war with one another. In everything that we see, underlying everything that we see. Thinking that is opposed to God and the knowledge or thinking that is, that is in accordance with the knowledge of God and in submission to Christ. Two opposing forces. What this scripture is saying is that in the physical world, even though we live in the physical world, we will always be confronted and challenged with extreme, godless, secular thinking. You ask, what do you mean by secular? By secular, I mean a culture that is either indifferent to what God says or altogether rejects what God says in His Word about every issue in life. Secular, godless, anti-God, truth-rejecting kind of thinking. Secular. And here's the problem with any of us succumbing to the mindset of the world. Ready? That if you adopt the world's mindset, your methods will soon follow. 
If you would succumb to the thinking of man, then you will begin to believe that man-centered solutions will solve the problem. And I want to remind you thunderously today that they will not. They will not. As Christians, we know where the story is headed, right? We know. We understand that ultimately something deeper, something more profound, something more radical needs to happen. And that is that genuine, sustainable, lasting change can only happen when Jesus, people have a collision with the risen Christ. When they turn from their sins and from walking in darkness to now following Christ, walking in the light. And there's an inner heart transformation that takes place. That's the only kind of change that's genuine that's going to lead to sustainable, eternal change. Everything else is man-centered and temporal. Think about that. This is a third point I really want to make this morning. If you're taking notes. Being about the gospel means that we allow... And I intentionally wrote that word in there that we allow the gospel to be our framework, our lenses, if you will, for addressing all suffering. We allow the gospel to be our framework for addressing all suffering. And I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This morning, such a glorious text. Again, we said some ultra important things last week. And reiterated them this morning. But I want you to know that this third point is the most important point that I want to make as your pastor. And that I'm convinced, because I know their heart on these issues, that your elders don't want you to miss. This third point right here. More than anything else. During the time where these things have kind of picked up, as far as just some of the atrocities that we've witnessed... As I've had conversations with people outside of this church, underline that, people that I respect deeply outside of our church, longtime friends and brothers and sisters, you know what's grieved me the most? That in some cases, I've been called a gospel purist. Because I want to emphasize Christ and this particular point that I'm making to you. It's been eye-opening to hear and be exposed to people that I respect outside of our church in the face of all that's going on who are not denying the gospel, but by their silence, they're downplaying its relevance for the issues that we are facing in our society, perhaps assuming it even. Men who want the same thing that I want. Men who are godly men who want justice, but saying things like, you're a gospel purist. We already know the gospel. We already know that it's about the gospel. But notice everything that's taking place. For a long time it's been taking place. And to some extent, I get it. You know why I get it? Because I think that oftentimes, unfortunately, in the history of Bible-centered conservative Christianity, you know what we've done with some of the issues that we are seeing in our country and that we've been seeing for a long time? We hide behind the gospel. By basically ignoring those things, being indifferent to those things, saying, no, those are socio-political issues. Those are things of the government. We're just about the gospel. And I think we've sent a contradicting message to the world around us. 
And unfortunately, even to our younger, young people, our teens and our single adults and the young couples in our world. That, hey, we don't need to be involved in all of those things because after all, we're just about the gospel. I think we've shot ourselves in the foot, brothers and sisters. I think we have. So we need to give credence to that on the one hand. But on the other hand, I've seen the dangers. I've seen the dangers, and I'm being honest with you, of assuming or abandoning the gospel in the name of justice. In the area of poverty, in the area of human suffering, in the area of race and prejudice, partiality, whatever you want to call it, all right? I've seen the dangers of assuming the gospel or abandoning the gospel. For years, I worked with a ministry focused on resourcing churches to alleviate the the hungry suffering of poor people, not only in our country, but especially in other countries all over the world. And you know what the greatest battle was? The greatest battle was keeping gospel-centered churches, biblically grounded churches, and organizations who were, whose goal was to alleviate the suffering of people in their communities, to keep them on track to staying faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just becoming secular, with no God, no gospel, not giving people eternal hope through the offer of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen it. I'm telling you. And we dare not go that route as God's people. And there is so so much emotion, so much suffering, so much hurt, so much pain. Oh, Lord, the, the harm being done all over the world is so great. I feel it just like you do. But we should never compromise the truth. We should never assume the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never do that. Well, here in Ephesians 2. We're confronted with where we should begin, brothers and sisters, if we want to offer the world real hope. All right? Here is the gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And of course, when you talk about the gospel, the good news of Christ, we always start with the problem, right? And Paul outlines our problem in verses 1 through 3. Notice, what was our state outside of Christ? Ephesians 2 and verse 1. He says, and you, Christians were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. This was your status. You, outside of Christ, you were spiritually dead. And then he adds, what was your conduct life? Uh, conduct like? Verse 2, in which you formerly walked or lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too, all formerly, prior to Christ, lived in the lusts of our flesh, that is, the evil desires of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Brothers and sisters, this was how our spiritual deadness manifested itself. In the pursuit of self-pleasure, in the pursuit of selfish purposes, walking in our sins and trespasses, And notice our nature at the end of verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was our hopeless, helpless predicament. Spiritual death. And no amount of outward reformation could change our hearts. There was no hope for us. No hope for us. But what did God do? Here's the solution in verses 4 through 10. But... 
God, verse 4. Those are some of the most glorious words, aren't they? But God, because they signal God's intervention. The fact that God performed a rescue operation for spiritually dead sinners who could not save themselves, who could not rescue themselves. God stepped in. God intervened. What did he do? Look at verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. God raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. All in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Verses 4 and 7 tell us why. Because God is rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Verse 7, because of the riches of his grace and kindness shown toward us who believe. Kindness, grace, mercy. That's what, that's what motivated God to intervene on behalf of sinners who are spiritually dead like you and I. All of this, of course, in Christ. By virtue of Jesus' atoning death on the cross, this was made possible. And what was the ultimate purpose for God doing this through Jesus? Look at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ultimate reason why God did all of this was for His glory, to display His grace to a lost world. I want to remind us this morning that salvation from our sins and from God's wrath is first and foremost about God and then about us. It's about His glory, the display of His grace, His kindness, His mercy. Amen? God is glorious in in salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's why you're sitting here this morning if you are a believer. Because God performed a rescue operation in your life by sending Jesus to die for your sins on the cross and pay for your sins on the cross. And raised Him from from conquering sin and death three days later. That's why you're here. That's why if you're watching virtually and you're a believer, this is your hope right here, the hope of the gospel. This is why we are here worshiping Christ. This is, this is the gospel. This is the treasure and pearl of great price. This is the message, beloved, that we need to cling to that brings hope in this world. The gospel of what God did to reconcile sinners like us to himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Christ is the centerpiece of this good news. Hear me. The gospel is not... Social justice. The gospel is not social engagement and outward externalistic reform. The gospel is not human development, equipping and empowering individuals to be successful, finding self-worth, a good life. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not helping the poor, as noble-minded as that is. The gospel is not homeschooling, public schooling, or charter schooling. Amen, parents? It's not. The gospel is not self-esteem, helping people get up on their feet and feel better about themselves. The gospel is not personal fulfillment. The gospel is not ushering in some utopian society where everything is ideal and perfect that simply won't exist in this world until Jesus returns and he turns the world upside down and establishes a new kingdom, new heavens, and a new earth, right? 
The gospel is not any of those things. None of those things, some of which hear me, are worthwhile endeavors, but they are not the gospel. They are not the gospel. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed about a central person, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, who became man, who lived a perfect, sinless life who suffered and died on a cross for sinners to pay for sins, who rose bodily from the dead, is ascended and exalted to the right hand of God, who is returning to judge the living and the dead. This is the gospel. This is the pearl of great price that we gave everything to gain. Amen? Jesus Christ. It's about exalting Christ as we have embraced him. He is the gospel. And when you respond to this good news by acknowledging that you're a sinner, by acknowledging that you deserve hell and condemnation for your sins, and instead you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved from God's judgment against your sin. You can be saved today. You can be genuine. You can begin this process of God changing you. And hear me, you don't come, you don't change yourself so that you can come to God and he can forgive you. You come to God as you are, turn from your sins and you put your trust in Jesus. You come to God as you are so that he begins to change you. That's good news for the worst kinds of sinners, including ourselves, isn't it, beloved? That's why we're here because of Christ. So that, as Romans 8, 1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter what the world is telling you right now, no matter who's condemning you, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you, Is this the gospel message that you're living to proclaim and that you are most zealous about as a child of God? Is this what occupies your attention more than anything else as what shapes your outlook of what's going on and shapes how you engage the issues that are going on? Is it about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, some of us are really tuned in to all the injustices that are taking place in our world, and you should be, I am too. Believe me. But I hear very little about the hope of Christ, very little gospel sharing, very little gospel witnessing, very little gospelizing, where we bring the principles of the gospel to bear upon the things that are taking place. I hear very little of that. And I see very little of it on social media, frankly. Even from men that I respect. And so all of us are susceptible, you and I, to losing sight of what our central focus should be. And the lenses through which we should see all of the issues that are taking place. Some of us have frankly lost our way. We lost our focus. We are... Rightly so, outraged over the injustices in our country, it's normal, it's natural for human beings to feel outrage at injustice is to be human. It's something that God has put in us. 
It's a God-given thing. The problem is that oftentimes we are, are, are because of our fallenness, our sense of justice and injustice is tainted with self-centeredness in our own sin. Partiality. We call some things out, but we're uncomfortable about calling other injustices out, right? And we dealt with that last week. We should, we should not condone any injustices going on in our world right now. We should not be partial. But that sense of injustice and that desire to see things be done that are right is a God-given thing. So this is a good thing. But brothers and sisters, please don't forget that all of the injustices that we see in our world are only a picture of the greatest injustice that every single human being has committed against a holy and just God, our Creator. That's the greatest injustice, our rebellion against God, our enmity against God and against His rule, His just and righteous and good rule. Now listen, this first part, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians, is the message of the gospel and what sets Christianity apart from all other justice endeavors going on. Do you hear me? It's about the gospel first. Without this gospel, we will resort to man-centered solutions, which ultimately will take us nowhere. We may, after all of this is over, all this extreme violence is over by the grace of God, we may, after all that is over, have temporary truce. Temporary ceasing of fire and attack between different people groups. We may have temporary truce eventually. But I submit to you that genuine, heartfelt peace is not possible through man-made methods. Truce may be possible, but real, genuine peace can only happen when you and I first are at peace with who? With God, through Jesus Christ. That's when real peace can happen. So don't lose sight of the first part of Ephesians 1 through 10. The gospel. The gospel. Now please pay attention, okay? Having said that, I want you to notice that there are all kinds of applications and implications for our gospel transformation. And if Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 describes our vertical reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, then verses 11 through 22 now describes one massive implication of gospel transformation, and that is genuine, heartfelt, horizontal reconciliation with one another as members of the body of Christ. If verses 1 through 10 describe vertical reconciliation, then out of the the fruit of that, should be ongoing preservation of horizontal, sweet, tender, harmonious, unifying relationships with one another as members of the body of Christ. And the church is best positioned to see that happen. The greatest divide that we've ever seen in the history of two people groups was that of the Jews and the Gentiles. By Gentiles, I mean non-Jewish nations. And if you remember... God had called Abraham, and what did God promise Abraham? He promised him a great name, a vast geographical location, and a great nation of people. 
But God had also told Abraham that through him, through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. How so? Ultimately through Christ, the Jewish Messiah, right? Through Christ, who eventually came through the kingly line of David, of the tribe of Judah, a son of Jacob, who was a son of Isaac, who was a son of Abraham. Amazing, the faithfulness of God in unfolding that plan. God's plan had always been, brothers and sisters, to bless all the nations, all people groups, through Abraham, and specifically through the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come ultimately through Abraham. But what happened with the Jewish people? Leading into the first century, they had a huge problem with this. Over the course of time, the Jews became proud, became privileged, self-entitled, exclusivistic. They looked down their noses on other ethnicities, driven to have sinful prejudices and practice partiality toward other ethnic groups who were not Jewish. That's what happened to the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul knows this. When he writes as a pastor to the Ephesian church, he knows this struggle. In fact, listen, he knows because he was one of those exclusivistic kind of people. If you just read Philippians chapter 3, he boasts about his Jewishness, his Jewish heritage, as well as his religious pedigree. And he says, but when I met Christ, all of those things are nothing, and it's all about Jesus Christ now, and we're all one in Christ. That was Paul. He understood because he lived it. And so it's on the heels of that, of verses 1 through 10, of talking about the vertical reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus, that notice how he draws out the implication of the gospel for this issue of ethnic tensions in the church, because the gospel is absolutely relevant to all of these issues, right? And I just want us to listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, okay? As I read it. Therefore, verse 11... Therefore, great key word. In light of your vertical reconciliation with God, verses 1 through 10, here is one massive implication, application of the gospel. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, before Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, reminds you of back in verse 4, right? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, because of his atoning death. Verse 14 is beautiful. For he himself is our peace. Anytime you see that, he himself, emphatically, Christ and no one else is our peace. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him through Christ we both have our access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, you think he's trying to emphasize who the, who the exclusive, unrivaled Lord and peacemaker is? Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul says, you want to understand the massive or one massive implication, application of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, brother or sister in Christ? You want to understand that? Horizontal relationships should be peaceful. He even says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He doesn't say, be diligent to create unity. Christ did that, right? He's the great peacemaker. He himself, emphatically. Christ establishes unity, and we, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, preserve that unity. We love one another. We operate in fellowship with one another, despite social class, or because of it. Even in the face of different colors of skin, even when you come into the church with baggage and experiences in your life, you leave the baggage that would hinder you from preserving peace at the door when you come into the church. And whenever you see it rear its ugly head, you deal with it and you go throw it outside of the church again. Because we are called to be different than the world around us, brothers and sisters. Our great peacemaker has established peace And so don't miss this. Paul takes a real issue in that society of deeply embedded ethnic tensions or conflict, and he draws out the natural, necessary, spirit-empowered implications for the way that they treat one another as members now of the family of God. The gospel becomes the framework of, through which Paul calls on all Christians to understand and engage the issue of ethnic injustice, if you will, and all other issues. And we don't have time to look at this, but in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, Paul draws out all kinds of other applications and implications. For example, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he says, walk in unity. Why should you walk in unity? Because of the gospel. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, he calls them to walk no longer like the world. Why? Because chapter 4, verse 20 says, you've learned Christ differently because of the gospel. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he calls them to walk in love. Why? Because God has loved them in Christ. Why should you love one another? Because of the gospel. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, he calls on them to walk in the light, in holiness. Why? Because they're in the Lord because of the gospel. It's all about the gospel. And in chapter 5, verses 15 through 33, he calls them to walk carefully and wisely as gospel transforms citizens. This is going to show itself in their marriage relationship, parent-child relationships, employer-employee relationships, an application for our context. It's all about the gospel. And why, brothers and sisters, do we preserve unity in the church across beautiful Social and ethnic lines because of the what? Gospel. Because of the gospel. 
Our grid, our filter, our framework for both understanding and engaging all of the issues of our society is the gospel. And as it pertains to this issue of of injustice as we're seeing it in our country right now, it is so important that we remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 22. One flows from the other. First comes vertical reconciliation. And if you want true peace with others, then you must first of all have peace with God, right? That's why as Christians, we should not run to the ladder before recognizing the profound peace that Jesus brings first and foremost. The gospel shapes our outlook of justice right now, brothers and sisters. It informs, it frames it. You say, Pastor Kempis, what do you mean by all of this? Why is this so important that I hold on to the gospel? What are those ideologies? What are those things that I need to be concerned about right now if I am going to be a child of God who is faithful to Christ and his word as I engage and speak the truth into these issues? Lest I be ambiguous, let me be more specific, okay? People have asked about the organization Black Lives Matter. And by the way, those who are asking about this organization are people who are against injustices just like you and I would be. They're asking about what about Black Lives Matter? I remember a few years ago being introduced to the label or the slogan Black Lives Matter and initially thinking to myself, you know what? At face value, yes, of course, black lives matter. It was really the slogan or the label was was meant to convey the idea that black lives matter too. T-O-O. Black lives matter too. It's like saying if you're if you're against abortion, hey, babies' lives matter. You're not saying that other lives don't matter. What you're saying is babies' lives matter too. That's what you're saying. The movement started in 2013, though many point to the atrocities over history and these events really being the sort of the camel that, were, that broke the, 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 the events that broke the camel's back. In 2013, the movement was started specifically in response to two cases of injustice. The first one, you may remember, was the acquittal of an officer in the shooting of an unarmed black teenager by the name of Trayvon Martin. I remember that event. It was a very sad thing to see. And the second injustice, which really m- sort of catapulted the movement more to prominent on a national level, was approximately a year later when another unarmed black teenager, Michael Brown, was shot to death by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Those two situations and history, many would add, would be things, injustices that led to the movement starting in its initial seed form. We need to realize that Black Lives Matter was a movement that was started in response to those injustices. And essentially making the point, black lives matter too, as other lives matter. It's a statement about equality, which I think... We would affirm and agree, wouldn't we? Yes, we would agree with this. We would affirm it. But you have to then dig deeper, don't you? You have to dig deeper. You know, when you become a member of our church, most of you know this, who are members, 
What do we have you do if you're going to be a member of our church? We need you to read the doctrinal statement. We need you to read it, be informed, try to understand it, ask any questions that you want to ask, affirm what we believe from the scriptures so that you are not fooled as far as becoming a member here. We we want you to come in with your eyes wide open as to what you are affirming and that you're calling us to check those things according to scripture, right? Through the grid of scripture. I'm amazed about how people do that when they're going to become members of a church. But oftentimes many don't do that when it comes to movements like these and others. There's more, you see. Because later on, I went to the website, and over the years this has been developed more. And I'm just taking a small portion of, for the sake of, of time here, of what it says on their official website as an organization. We affirm the lives of black, queer, and trans folks, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum. Our network centers centers those who have been marginalized within black liberation movements. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she, he, or they disclose otherwise. There's more. A term there mentioned, heteronormative, is a view that what's normal is that you should only be attracted to or marry a person of the opposite sex. Black Lives Matter rejects that. Rejects that. Rejects only heterosexual marriage relationships. Looks to deconstruct traditional family, which is a foundation of our civilization of God's creation, right? From the very beginning in the early chapters of Genesis, it flaunts homosexuality, the LGBTQ movement, and more and more and more. And my biggest concern, brothers and sisters, is that God is against those sins. God is against those things. And while we absolutely agree that black lives matter too, amen? And that no one should be discriminated against on the basis of color, social standing, physical disability, etc. Black Lives Matter as an organization should not be something that you and I as Christians embrace. Please hear me. Black Lives Matter didn't begin as a Christian movement. Nor does it, is it looking to gain Christianity as an ally by submitting to what God says. In fact, it's the opposite. If Christianity is going to be an ally to Black Lives Matter, then God, hear me, God will have to bow to the principles of Black Lives Matter. Because it's not going to happen the other way around. In fact, that, our culture is going completely that direction. Anti-God. Secularized. Full-blown rejecting what God says. And you need to know I say this for a reason. As your pastor, as a churchman for our Christian church at large in our country and all over the world, 
You need to know that I say this because there are Christians or professing believers of all ethnic persuasions, by the way. Don't start thinking color in your head. Of all ethnic persuasions who support the movement, specifically the organization, as if it's an ally of Christianity or some offshoot of Christianity. Beloved, it's not. It's not. Again, to reiterate, I think that we can affirm and agree to whatever extent that racism, prejudice, partiality, whatever you want to call it, in its extreme or subtle forms, is a reality. It's still an issue in our country. Some of you are living in self-denial, and you need to realize, even if your experience shows otherwise, that doesn't make your experience authoritative. It's real. It's real. I've experienced it. And many brothers in Christ all over the country that I've spoken to for the last two or three weeks, would they all be lying about their experiences? Absolutely not. Even their experiences of such things in the church, some of you are living in self-denial. And making your experience authoritative. It exists. We can agree on that. And we can agree on the fact that all people, regardless of ethnic persuasion, are image bearers and have inherent dignity and value and worth as God's creatures. We can affirm all of those things because they are Bible truths. But my concern as a pastor is that the Christian church, while affirming these truths, don't go so far as to embrace and promote secular and liberal organizations like these and others. This isn't about a debate for me. This isn't about arguing a point. And it shouldn't be for any of you either. You should approach this with compassion in an informed way. Understanding even what that was in response to. Because as a conservative church, historically, we have done ourselves a disservice. We've sent, again, the contradicting message that we don't care about those things because we're just about the gospel. I pray and I hope as your pastor, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the messages that we did last week and this week will send thunderously the message to you that we need to be actively engaged in these issues, praying for them. Being salt and light in the world, but it needs to be through the framework of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we need to be about. Beloved, put your Bible and gospel lenses on. People have asked me, in addition to that particular organization, about the extreme domestic terrorist or activist groups in our country. I'm not talking about peaceful protesters who are appealing and rightfully saying there's something that is wrong here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about groups that are talking about deconstructing societal structures, defunding or even undoing all law enforcement. Again, to be clear, measured, thoughtful, appropriate changes and reform is needed. But there's this rebel spirit of anti-law that is not good, that is detrimental to people right now being entertained, even by people in the church who call themselves Christians. I grieve. Many are pushing for demolishing certain structures. And the tendency tends to be, as you listen to some of these people argue these things, is that there's this belief, this naive belief, that we can arrive at some kind of a utopian society, this perfect ideal society, and that we can arrive at this ideal if we overthrow certain structures in our society, and this somehow will solve all of our problems. It will not, right? It will not 
Many have been pushing for the deconstructing and even doing away altogether of God's family infrastructure. One of the building blocks that got established in civilization. We've seen that pick up steam even during this time. Amazing. Finally, what concerns me, brothers and sisters, is this. That in so many, not all, not all of the extreme segments of protesting, there's this overall spirit not of reconciliation, not even of reform, but one of revenge, of retribution. That is not of God. And that is not the way of the Christian. That is not the way of God's people. What did God say in Romans twelve nineteen? We saw this last week. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. As Christians, we don't take matters into our own hands in a sinful, destructive, violent way. Even internally growing bitter, living in perpetual bitterness over the things that we see in our world. We take those things to God and we engage as salt and light, keeping the gospel on the forefront. We pray for our country. We pray for people. I'm tired of hearing some people say, well, you should do more than pray. Yeah, you should do more than pray, but you better make sure that you're praying. Prayer changes things, doesn't it? Pray. Vote for law, lawmakers and, and legislation that, that is within the biblical parameters of God's word. Get into the segments of society through your education, some of you young people, and jobs and work environments to be salt and light in those environments. Get amongst people to impact and speak the truth and love into those environments. And in the church, let us pursue relationships, brothers and sisters. Relationships with one another, especially people who are different than you. Especially those who are of a different skin color than you are. I talked to somebody outside of this church. Underline that, okay? Outside of this church. Who was asking me, like, I don't, have, I don't feel like, like I have that issue in my heart. Like I love all people and everything. In fact, I'm, I'm basically a colorblind. I go, don't be colorblind. God made people of different colors with cultures connected to that. That's beautiful and precious. We celebrate that in the church. Don't be colorblind. But challenge yourself to hang out with people who are not your same skin color and culture. Because that's how you show in a subtle, unintentional way that you do have some prejudices. That you do have some issues. It's not just what you do to commit sin against somebody. It's what you withhold from them. Fellowship, tenderness, sweetness, relationship. We should be about that, brothers and sisters. We are called to protect the truth, to guard the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form or appearance of evil. That word examine in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 is the word dakimazo. It means to test something for the sake of approval, for the sake of its genuineness. Every package that you're being handed right now, brothers and sisters, of thinking fortresses, unpack it. Unpack it. Isn't that what you do when you get a package at home from UPS or Amazon or whatever? You open it, you see what's in it, you examine it, you test it to make sure that it works. Do that with thinking fortresses right now. Packages that you're being handed through social media or whatever. 
Opinions that people have. Take them through the grid of the truth of the word of God and the gospel. The gospel must shape our understanding and engagement in these things. That's what we're talking about this morning. Ask yourself these questions. Ready? Who founded these movements or organizations? Take your gospel eraser and expose and test these things. Who founded these movements or organizations? Where did they come from? How did they evolve? Even though there's some, some truth to them, it doesn't mean that it's healthy or helpful or provides sustainable solutions. Ask yourself, beside elements that are true, what else do they believe and claim? What solutions do they pose to these problems? And most importantly, what is the underlying thinking? What is the mindset? What are the ideas or guiding principles driving, fueling, motivating these movements and organizations? Ask yourself that. We all need to do this. We all need to do this, brothers and sisters. It's good and noble And God-honoring, I think we've said this enough, to speak the truth in love on any and all of these injustices. The gospel is relevant for all of these things. But as you do so, can I encourage you and challenge you and exhort you as one of your elders here, don't sign off so quickly on movements and organizations who are founded on, motivated by, fueled by destructive ideologies and thinking fortresses. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I pray that we would take these scriptures and other scriptures to heart that call us to do that, brothers and sisters. It's really our desire as your elders, as your shepherds, that this very difficult time would be one not in which we would just survive but that we would thrive as a church and on mission. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Lord, I recognize that there are hard things that we are dealing with in our country and in our world, and even hard triaging that is taking place in our own hearts and in the heart of the Christian church especially. Father, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be faithful to the entrusted gospel, the deposit that we've been handed to handed, which is the gospel of your son. Lord, please, by your grace, help your church on mission here on this earth to continue to have as our focus to exalt Christ by making disciples who know, love, and serve Christ, making other disciples who will do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.